This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That I'm joined today on the podcast by a very special guest, John Sitton, who is very well known within football, especially down in England. He was a star of the documentary, Orient Club for a Fiver. John, how are you? Yeah, very well, mate. Yeah, very well indeed. Touchwood. Uh, what about yourself? You, you all good up there? Yeah, not bad at all. What I want to start with is, what is it you're up to now, for, for people that don't know? Um, well... After the documentary was uh, first aired, um, I think I'm right in saying it was October 1995, I carried on arboring ambitions to stay in the game, although anyone that's sort of read my recent autobiography will know it probably cost me money to stay in the game or be in the game. And um, after about 18 months of, of applying for various jobs, um, I've decided just to stop chasing the dream and, and call it a day. I wasn't high profile enough. I hadn't... See, what you've got to be, you've got to be either really high profile, and, and a lot of the time, uh, dare I say, you've got high profile people, high profile players who probably, they took the game for granted because they were so talented and they probably couldn't even coach as well as I could at the time. And yet they're, they're given jobs. And then the, the, the second category you, you need to fall into is someone who's maybe sycophantic and latches onto the coattails of someone who's high profile um, and gets a little job in the game and then maybe gets a bit of recognition and they're either headhunted or they just go from club to club with the with the guy they're working under. And I like to think I'm a, I'm a sort of a leader, not a follower, although... A lot of the game is based on plagiarism. Um, I just said, you know what, I've got to draw a line under it because I had three small children at the time, um, although they're all grown up now. Uh, seven, four and three, my, my, my children were aged at the time. I had no money from my playing career, so I just decided to draw a line under it and, and just go off in a different direction. <clears throat> and it, it meant basically, <clears throat> excuse me, it meant basically completely retraining for something else because all I've known since the age of... Uh, 12 um, was being in and around a professional football club environment so basically I went out and I signed up to do the uh, topographical knowledge of London to become a, a black cab driver How long have you been doing that for now? Uh, funny enough you should. it was funny you should say that I've, I've, I've just had my 17th anniversary in the job uh, what it was is they normally give a it was a couple of things that, you know, more obstacles to to, uh, to overcome because they basically say it takes around about three years to complete it. Two things. One, it took me five and a half years because I had a bit of previous as a kid, which, again, people will know if they read my autobiography. I had a few little off-the-field things, um, although I've never been a troublemaker in my life. Um, and secondly, what they've done, they changed the examination process. As I've come to the end, they give you two years to complete the subject matter. 
And uh, I, as I came to the end of it, they basically changed, they completely changed the examination process. So I had to go back to the beginning again, more or less, you know. And then you put your papers in and you get on what is uh, an ongoing five-state examination. So, yeah, anyway, thankfully I got through that. And, um, you know, I've been, at first, I'm, I'm going to preempt any 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 uh, following questions. But first, I, I was very happy because basically what had happened is, you know, football would sort of ostracise me and treat me a little bit like a leper, you know, get, 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 flick the middle finger at me. And I, I basically, I did it back. And I was I was really uh, happy the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd made a sort of clean break and I was, uh, I was my own man again. In terms of you mentioned 17 year anniversary, you've you've got incredible knowledge of London, as you've said, because if you didn't have the knowledge, you wouldn't be in the job. So you've got the knowledge. Do, see, when you're driving your car, do, do football fans recognise you? And if so, what's their reaction to you when when they when they realise it's you? Well, I've got to say, I mean, it's happened a few times. I've got to say, it's pretty positive. You know, if the truth be told, you know, we have a. You know, there's a bit of bit of leg pulling. We have a laugh and a joke about the about the uh, what had gone on in the, in the documentary, and um, you know, I just got to accept it for what it is. You know what I mean? It's it, if the truth be told, um, it's like anything in life. You know, boundaries are pushed, etc. And um, it's like I've commented that I've done the I've done the two things. One is I've listed. And the same goes, I've talked to a lot of the boys up there, you know, and, and round about the country. You know, Birmingham, uh, got a lot of, lot of black cab mates in uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, places like this. Uh, we're, we're all the same, you've got to have knowledge. And I, I basically, I put in my book because I was just as, uh, basically, being a, not a, a foul-mouthed thug. Um, although, like, an ex, ex-teammate of mine and, and opposition player when he left Millwall, Teddy Sheringham, who's quite a famous name, we bumped into each other at a, at a sports club, forward stroke gym, and he said to me, Sits, I don't understand it. He said it's happened a thousand times before and it, it's happened a thousand times since. But I just, I just put in my book that uh, the, the, the knowledge that I did constituted learning um, in sequential order, 6,400 major routes, 144 cross-sections, which is a posh name for shortcuts. You had to buy uh, all the subject matter yourself and learn it. And the, the 144 cross-sections was like six lots of 24. North London, South London, East London, West London, and then West End and City. So it's, it's just uh, fundamentally learning shortcuts and rap runs, what we call rap runs in the trade. Uh, 35 runs between all the football stadiums in London. Uh, 66 suburbs, 20 of which start from Heathrow. Um, and incorporated in all that, 6,400... Uh, to 8,000 points of reference, known in brief as a point, which could be anything. Pub, club, restaurant, hotel, bar, theatre, train station, tube station, police station, hospital, clinic, sports ground, you name it, you've got to be all over it. Um, And and then, you know, I just basically remarked thick as shit, me, and I, after after, after doing what's tantamount to a PhD, um, when people recognise me, they... One or two, they've tried to give me the tune-up and, and uh, get me at it. And I just say, well, look, you know, would you have um, forgiven me by now if if I've been a manager who's sort of they butted a, an opposition player on the touch line or got older one round the throat um, because of an argument over a throw-in? Um, you know, would you have forgiven me for 
what we know about, two lots of uh, underage sex, which has led to convictions, uh, curb crawling, um, drug abuse, drug addiction, gambling addiction, alcoholism. In the case of one manager, all ex-manager, all three, uh, who go on to be pundits. Um, you know, various nefarious goings on with with females um, and 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 overt racism from uh, Mr. Potato Red, who won two FA Cups with the biggest club in the world, um, and and then. Probably the most heinous crime of all, where people have been desperate and have actually re-signed players who, I think it's happened twice, they've, they've killed someone through drink driving in their Range Rover. Um, I use like basically blue-collar working-class language, which have, which is which had been, let's say, omnipresent in uh, dressing rooms, uh, you know, since M- Moses was in nappies. That's <laughs> spot on, to be fair, and. And and it's and it, we're going to come to the documentary shortly. But one last thing on your your role as, as a black cab driver: Have you had any famous passengers over the years? Any say again? Any uh, any any famous passengers over the years? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. Um, I mean, in a football context. Um, I've had uh, John Gregory. Actually, I was taking him to see his lawyer. Um, after he'd just been sacked by Aston Villa, we had a good chat actually about he, what he'd been through and, and uh, you know people who we knew in the game um, and, and, and the documentary itself. Um, Cilla Black, before, well before she passed away, she was with Paul O'Grady, uh, the actor Johnny Lee Miller, Kylie Minogue, um, who else have I had? See what it is like. You just, I mean, when they get in the back, they've so many. Like when they get in the back, really, you you just try and treat them as a normal customer, even though you know who they are. Um, yeah, and I've got, I've got to say, the majority of them were, you know, fantastic. Charday, the most uh, wonderful human being, um, still stunning looking, and as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. She actually settled the fair sat in the back and carried on talking to me for another 15 minutes. That's amazing. Um, it's just, it's just um, I remember her from, and that, that was Andy because I bring out a collection of CDs to keep me sane. So what I do is I flip between like a bit of music and, you know, like talk radio. Um, when I say talk radio, I mean it in the broadest sense. You know, in London, like you've got like LBC and um, then I had a row with a presenter on there. So, I don't really listen to that much anymore. <laughs> um, latter day, they've been a little bit pro over uh, talk sport, and then I go back to my music, and then like I just said, "Oh, look at this!" And and uh, I had um, I happened to have on me on me on that particular day uh, a greatest hits from the eighties, and I just said, like you know, I've been I've been a massive fan of music, and I've always thought you had a marvelous voice, and we just started talking about life and you know different crossroads that you have. Anyway, she, she was just like a wonderful. A wonderful person, you know, a lovely person, really lovely girl. Uh, quite a few, you know what I mean? But they, they go out your head because you just, what you got to do, you just got to like, move on to the next one. And I like to think I treat everybody the same, unless they like the touch paper and, 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 and try and get me at it. Or, you know, or you've got enough stress on your plate without putting up with, uh, with a muppet, you know what I mean? So I dress everyone as sir or madam and um, treat them with the same respect. Um, polite, courteous, and get, get them to the destination as lively as I can. Am I right in seeing you for Josie Mourinho as a passenger? Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I got flagged on... Um, 
in the city, right in the city. I think he's been to do a, you know, like they do these either a presentation or they do one of these where they address a, like a corporate gathering um, up at King William Street, up on the, right in the city there. And this hand went up, and then uh, so I pulled over, and Giza gets in, and another and the woman gets in, and then uh, they one the woman sat on the flip seat, and then um, there was uh, the geezer sat on the flip seat behind me, but diagonally to me side, and then another woman gets in and slides over, and then the geezer gets in. I look in the rearview mirror, it's Jose Mourinho. I can't believe it. And I just said to him, "Well, what's the chances of that?" So he says, "Excuse me," I said. Well, nine million people in London that we know about, um, twenty-two thousand black cab drivers, and I said, and I've got the Chelsea manager uh, jumping in the uh, in the cab driven by an ex-Chelsea player. He's like, no. I said, yeah. And he went, when was you there? I said, nineteen seventy-four to nineteen eighty. He went, really? I said, yeah. I said, I came through the ranks. I said, schoolboy, fourteen, apprentice, sixteen, offered a four-year pro deal at seventeen and a half. Captain of the reserves at 18, first team at 19, out of the club at 20. Really? Why did you leave? So I uh, said, so well, given the choice, I'd have stayed there for 20 years. I said, but I had a row with the manager. He started laughing. <clears throat> so um, he said, what did you row about? I said, well, the training regime. I said, we had uh, seven managers in six years. I said, so not a lot's changed, huh? <laughs> and he started laughing again. We had a good chat about football, and he said, well, what was the matter with the training regime? So I said, um, well, I said, like, the, the, the guy came in and he sweeping generalisation, and he said what they normally say when they can't think of anything to do as a coach. He just said everybody in the club's not fit enough, and then basically ran the knackers office for nine months. He went, really? He said, who was that? I said, Jeff Hurst. Um, I said, all that. I said, I, I thought we should have been able to coach, you know, Stand, as I put in my book, standing on his head with an eye patch on buying the mandolin. I said, but he never had a clue. I wouldn't trust him with a team of under-12s. I said, it was seven-mile runs in Richmond Park, avoiding all the stag droppings. I said, and um, uh, or the main ground, it, I said, I can recite it to this day. I said, it weren't like your, you know, your fitness coach doing a three-stage elongated warm-up. You know, you know these things, he said? I said, yeah, I used to be a coach educator for the FA. I said, I know as much as you. I said, um, it's about being in the right place at the right time with the right group of players. So I said, and I played a lot more than you as well. So he started laughing again. He goes, hey, you? He goes, uh, so go on, what happened? So I said, like, we'd do one one jog around the, the track when Stamford Bridge had a, a, a track. Because uh, they still, when I was there, I said, they still had the old ground, ground track. And I said, uh, we'd do a few stretches and then we go... One 800 metres, two 400 metres, four 200 metres, uh, four box-to-box, four sets of doggies and a nine-a-side. He, he says, uh, and? I said, and that was it. I said, that's, that's your end. That was it. I said, no uh, patterns of play, no defensive strategy, no, I don't know what, whether you, it's up to you, whether you call it, different people call it different things, no set pieces or restarts, no throw-ins. No coaching phases of play to, you know, create space and goal-scoring opportunities. No crossing and finishing. Um, no drilling the back four. None of this. I said, he never had a clue. He went, oh, my God. He said, I don't believe it. I said, yeah. I said, but that's how it was back then. You know, I said, like the top clubs, I said, they had top people. I said, and it's only latter day that Chelsea become a really top club. Anyway, he got out. And... Um, 
I said to him, look, I said, oh, first of all, I said to him, look, I goes, it's up to you. He give me, the, he give me where he wanted it for where he lives, actually, in uh, Belgravia. And um, I says to him, have you got a preferred route? So he said, no, no, I'll leave it to you. So I said, well, look, I goes, the, the little the immediate road in front of it was pretty clear. I said, but what I'm going to tell you is this. If we go straight across and you start running past some poles into Fleet Street, and uh, the Strand, I said, we're going to start getting the theatre crowd coming out and we're going to get held up and you're going to be sitting there with a metre running. And I said, if it's all up you, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll hug the river and slip along now. He said, yeah, fine. He said, I've got no problem. So that's what I did. And um, I was proved right because we washed it through. Got down there, £20.40. pence. So um, I said to him, uh, seeing as, as it's you, I know you don't need the money. I said, just give me 20 quid. <laughs> anyway, he said something to Mrs. in Portuguese, and she come up to me. She gave me two twenty-pound notes. He said, "Keep your change." He said that. He said that one of the best cab journeys I've ever had. He said that was fantastic. He goes, you, "He goes, you, you're a very knowledgeable man." He said, "They're very amusing." He come up and he sit, leant in the window and shook hands. You know how he shakes hands? Not a, not how we shake hands, old school. You know that cross arm thing. He shook hands and he says, uh, "Have a have a good evening, my friend." I said, uh, "You too." I says to him. Um, Sometimes you're an artist, I said. Sometimes you're a professor. Sometimes you're a general. And uh, I said, like, I said, you seems you've mastered the art of management a lot better than I did. <laughs> so I said, continued success, and that was it. I drove off. Brilliant. That, that, that's that's just that's a great story. To be fair, John, I'm really glad to to you share that with me. And and what I want to talk to you about now, I don't want this whole podcast to be about the documentary because there's far more to you than just this documentary, in my opinion. We will come to your book later, but the documentary, Orient Club for a Fiver, how did it come about, and were you happy with the fact that it was it was something the club wanted to do? Right, this is the truth, the old truth and nothing but the truth. The previous season, um, there was five games to go. That was season 93-94. And... Uh, the then manager, Peter Eustace, who brought me back as youth coach after releasing me as a player because I was too trappy. Um, and again, I was questioning things, um, which I've got theories on all that, which I can come to later if you wish. Absolutely. Right. He basically, he went, to, he went to the board meeting and, and that, I think the, the board meetings were like the first Thursday in every month. Long story short, he said, look, and we were struggling, right? So that season, I don't know if you and, and uh, your listeners remember, but the, the divisions were all being restructured um, because they were going to trim the Premier League down from 22 clubs to 20. That had a knock-on effect, which meant more relegations, right? So in our division, four were, instead of three, four were destined to go down, and we were fifth from bottom. And the, the, the board started to get on top because the guy had spent a lot of money, particularly in late Orient terms. And I mean a lot of money, a serious amount of money. Um, and it was confirmed when I actually took over and, and, and basically opened all the books and started questioning stuff. Anyway, he just said, look, gentlemen, have you got the confidence in me to do the job, yes or no? So they said, well, quite frankly, Peter, no. So he pushes his chair back, shuffles his papers, um, puts him in a folder, puts it under, under his arm, says, in, in that case, the next time you speak to me will be through my solicitor and through the League Managers Association. And he walks out. He then goes on to become the highest paid gardener in Loughton for 15 months, right? <laughs> because they, could, they couldn't afford to pay him up. 
And then he'd done a deal, because he used to drive a Mercedes, and his uh, eldest daughter's boyfriend had a car front um, up in Yorkshire, where they're from, Sheffield, somewhere. So he'd done a deal to settle the finance and take the, the, the Merc off the club, and the, and the guy had a nice tidy profit out, out of it, stuck it on his car front. I'll come in with five games to go. Um, not a good enough return, which is when, uh, having seen a, a, a little thing on... Um, on YouTube last night with Gary Neville, they asked those question him about his time in Valencia, and uh, there was this is where the, the only the only similar similarities, um, apart from the fact that he's got medals coming out of his ass and a lot more money than me. Um, <laughs> he, he, he said he was he more or less admitted to being blinded by uh, arrogance and ambition are the words I would use, and and he was ego driven in taking the job. He should never have took the job. What happened was I thought that I could basically do a lot better um, than the previous incumbent who'd had a fortune to spend just through my coaching ability and, and organisational ability. We got the amount of points we needed to stay up. We move on, right? So I'm, I'm now done a deal on an handshake. I was on 280 quid a week and I was doing a seven-day week as youth coach because on Sunday, Peter Eustace, Frank Clark used to come back from Nottingham to his gaff in Loughton. Chris Turner, who's useless, is number two. Bernie Dixon, the chief scout, used to meet at a pub in Loughton and get pissed. And then this this was after Peter had given me instructions to turn up on a Sunday morning. Um, and my schedule basically went like this, right? Monday, I would have the youth team, and I insisted on the youth team training morning and afternoon. Then Monday night, I would go to the Centre of Excellence. Tuesday, we would train in the morning. Tuesday night, we'd report to the first team game. Wednesday, we were training in the morning and afternoon because I knew that they'd have Thursday off to attend college. Wednesday night, I would help co-staff the reserve team game. Thursday, the uh, youth team had their college day. I would go in and I would fill out their progress reports, then attend the Centre of Excellence and coach on Thursday evening. Friday morning, they'd play a practice match against the first team, which left me... Uh, only an hour Friday afternoon to prepare them for their game on Saturday morning. Turn up Saturday, they play their game um, in the South East Counties League as it was at the time. Saturday afternoon, if the first team were at home, we would attend the first team. Then I was told by Eustace I had to come in on Sunday morning and all this was for 280 quid a week before tax <laughs> to put a session on, in inverted commas, for those people, those players who hadn't played the day before and people returning from injury while he was in Latin getting uh, free parts drunk. <laughs> so that's what I did. Then I got the job in the summer, and uh, it was basically we turned a new page. And uh, at first, the players found it very, very refreshing. They were canvassed by the directors. They said, fantastic, like a breath of fresh air. Uh, we think you do a fantastic job, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, on a handshake... Uh, knowing that the previous incumbents had been on three times more, um, I, I took the job on a handshake to get a rise to 420 quid a week gross. Right? So, again, before tax. Yep. Um, was, in pre-season, we was approached, or I was approached, I got a call from upstairs where the, the only profitable organisation in the club uh, was the... Um, football in the community right? so that, that was staffed by a guy called Neil Watson who's he's gone on to work in Westminster 
um, in government circles, and a guy called Grant Conwell, who's now, he's been for quite a few years, he's been at Spurs as uh, head of their community. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Anyway, so I got the call, and they just said, look, we've been approached by someone who said that they're representing Channel 4, and they'd like to do um, a documentary about the club. So I've spoke to the chairman, as, uh, who, uh, who at the time was Tony Wood, who's been underpinning the club's losses for the previous four years on the proviso that the club went back to how they were in the 70s, which is fundamentally how you should run a club. Most of the, the, the first team were homegrown talent, and he wanted uh, the youth team and youth players and the youth setup to be modified, enhanced, improved, and uh, for, for the players to come through to the first team. So Frank Clark promised him that. And uh, then basically went off at a tangent and did what all managers do and, and, and live for the now. And he'd been underpinning the club's losses for four years, 10 grand a week, ergo 520 grand a year, um, which gives you, you know, some total of uh, something along the lines of 2 million and 80,000. Um, and then I says to Tony and I says to the vice chairman, Derek Weinrabe, I think it would be a cracking idea. And they said, what reasons do you give? I said, well, as long as it's about the, the goings-on and the whole club, um, I said, if you think about it, I said, we're surrounded by the not to the north. By if you, if you drive it in a car, you first of all, you come across Spurs, and secondly, you come across Arsenal. Five minutes down the road further to the east is West End. I said, if you go through Blackwell Tunnel, I said, first of all, you hit Millwall, and then you've got Cholton. I said, Palace is a lot further, I said, than uh, as is Wimbledon. I said, but fundamentally, we're surrounded by much bigger clubs in London. And I think it could be some um, positive publicity for the, for the football club. The way it turned out, two things. I've got to tell you very quickly. Firstly, it turned out to be more or less a documentary about me rather than the football club. Well, I'm going to tell you three things. Secondly, journalism is based on sensationalism, but I didn't realise that till after. So me drilling the back four, back five, back six, back eight, me doing uh, crossing and finishing sessions, phases of play, um, helping players to rotate, create space, clear the space and rotate, uh, me doing set pieces, patterns of play, me doing defensive strategy, me working behind the scenes as... Uh, Basically, first team manager, first team coach, reserve team coach, youth team coach, scout. I don't know why because we never had any money, so I don't know who I was scouting. Um, and then ultimately, commercial manager doesn't make for good TV. Me ranting and raving and catching on camera the three times when I did go ballistic makes for good TV. On top of which, thirdly, it transpired that the young lady who came in said that she was uh, representing Channel 4 when, in effect... She was uh, an IT graduate and an IT lecturer who wanted to do a film on the side, uh, put this proposal to a production company based in White Lion Street in Islington, who said, go ahead, you do it you know, off your own bat, do it at your own expense, we'll see how it turns out, and then what we'll do, we give you a bit of wages for it. Well, that's what she ended up doing. And then um, the production company gave her, I think, something like eight grand to live off for the year. And then they sold it for Christ knows how much to Channel 4. Channel 4 sold the syndicated rights to Channel 5. It's been on. Um, and then now it's 
it could be seen on YouTube, and it said something like, I don't know, something in the, between half a million and a million hits on YouTube. So uh, that, that that's the true story of what transpired and how it came about. In terms of the documentary, you mentioned the fact that it focuses on you, and and, and you're right, it, most of it really does. And one of the things that it focuses on, as you know, through the sensationalised nature of it was your team talks and and how, according to the film, how brutal they are. Do, how 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 do you how did you feel when you had the chance to watch the documentary back? Because as you've said, a lot of the good work you were doing, we never got to see. Well, it's the final now in my, uh, you know, in, in in the coffin of my coaching career. Um, they weren't what I I would call team talks. What I would like to have seen put on there was the, the real team talks that I gave. Uh, in preparation, I mean, have it right. The club, what I used to look forward to most of all, right, so I could get into the technical uh, nuances of, of football and the organisational side. I used to enjoy away games for the simple reason we'd go, we'd go to an away game, and then like most clubs, if not all clubs, unless they utilise the catering facilities at their own ground, then it's a local derby. Let's say most of them go to a hotel. And um, and you might stay overnight. If you don't stay overnight and it's close enough not to stay overnight, you stop over and what happens is you have a pre-match meal and a pre-match meeting. I used to love it because in the hotels were uh, we used to get a um, we used to request and get a, a flip chart and different coloured felt tip pens, right? Which the club couldn't afford. The club couldn't even afford a flip chart and couldn't even afford felt tip pens. Um, and, and and in the end, it, instead of me. Sh- showing me, let's say, filming me and showing me talking technically about what we'd already been over in training and giving little reminders to players. Um, and me actually praising players for the first few months, uh, you know, with a well done, well done, son, good boy, yeah, keep it going, the well played, yeah, more, same again, same again. Um, you know, it showed me ranting and raving. And uh, unfortunately... I made the mistake, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, very naive, incredibly naive. I made the mistake of, first of all, being blinded by arrogance and ambition and my own ego as as a coach because I was making great strides as an up-and-coming coach. Um, Just as a little addendum on the side there, like Tony Gow said to me, he'd been, uh, you know, he won the the Premier League... uh, winners medal with Blackburn, had a great career, Fulham he started with Chelsea with me, then went to Fulham, then went to West Ham, went to Blackburn. He said to me, Sits, he said in, in managerial terms, you was a baby. Because he said, how old was you? I said, well, just turned 34. He said, you was a baby. Um, but that's neither here nor there. You know, I've just I've basically got to roll my hands up and accept things, uh, the way things turned out. But like I said, the, 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 I had that thing where like my ego dictated the fact that I could go in and I could do a better job at a club losing 10 grand a week than the previous incumbent who had 29 players, uh, 27, maybe 28, maybe 29, spent well over a million pounds. They've obscene signing on fees and basic wages out to players in the twilight of their career, uh, well over 30 with no resale value. I thought I could do better with 15 players and no money (laughs) because I had to trim the staff and cut cut costs, right? So I was obviously blinded by arrogance and ambition, thinking that I could overcome all that. And then when you look at it, 
uh, I've got to say, I felt it came out in the October. I was crestfallen. I was devastated. It was like a dagger through the heart. And um, you know, when I when I, I raised the issue, I was just told that uh, no, it'd be fine, and you signed the disclaimer anyway. And, and I remember say, I remember the, the, the girl that filmed it saying, it's not my fault if people in football have only got two brain cells. She said, I'm just basically trying to highlight the stress that you was under, et cetera, et cetera. All right? I, I, what I want to do, I just want to quickly, let me quickly tell you, what I, I made, because I went off at a tangent slightly, the mistake I made on top of everything else was I, I actually naively thought that people would approach training and games the way I did. And uh, I had a solid career. I mean, I weren't a superstar, but I had a solid career. Um, and, and football was everything to me. And then when you go a little bit off the boil, I had a few confrontations. We had seven managers in six seasons at Chelsea. Uh, George Petty at Millwall, 25 years ahead of his time, but still had a temper. Um, Keith Peacock, uh, you know, second-rate winger from Cholton. He kept me on the same money for four years, pseudo-intellectual. Um, but did training that really suited the players, and, and it was it was what players liked, which was a lot of small-sided games, little drills, and very light on the running, and it was it was like a massive feel-good factor around the club because he'd signed good people. Uh, Frank Clark, again, along with Peacock, one of life's lucky boys, couldn't coach. Uh, the only success we had was when he actually bought a decent coach in, uh, Brian Eastick. And uh, that was the year we went up when I was captain, 88, 89. Right? For all of that, when you look at it and when you break it down, and, and I replay things, and I go back through, through um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, my playing career, all I was doing was naively thinking that I would get the same reaction when it was done to me. So what you're talking about with regards to the ranting and raving, etc. um I was just appealing to their professional pride. I was appealing to their egos. I was a, uh, as, as, as a footballer. I was also appealing to their egos as men. And when it was done to me, someone threw the gauntlet down with me, I would say, right, okay. And then if the ball's round about me, within the next, uh, say, the first 10 minutes of the second half, I've, having, I've seen fights like you wouldn't believe at half-time. I've seen... Pots of tea go flying. All the all the cliches. I've I've had to jump up and get between a manager and a player. I've seen a, my, a, my manager that was Frank Clark and Alan Holt. I've seen Frank Clark chin an opposition player at half time after he went over the top on one of our midfield players. I've seen all sorts at half time. Right. Um, all I did was raise my raise my voice and use some some profanities. And, and, and the motive was exactly what I said. There was, there's no other, other agenda other than me trying to appeal to their, like I say, pride as players, ego as players, pride as men and ego as men, and get a reaction. If it was done to me, what I was going to say, first 10 minutes, there'd be bodies everywhere. You understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, man, the, the, the manager's got a reaction out of me. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, you're not at it. You're not at it. You're off, you, you understand because my game was totally dominating the centre forward, and I played, I played um, against every high-profile international centre forward in the league at the time when I was a kid at Chelsea, and then uh, I acquitted myself magnificently at Millwall, and, and, and then again at Gillingham. Everyone kept pushing Steve Bruce, Steve Bruce, Steve Bruce. I was two-footed. I could I could control and pass with both feet. He was only right-footed. 
I had much better spring than him from a standing jump. I could head as well as him with a running jump. I could punch the ball with me head 40 yards. I was a little bit naughty in the tackle. He's worth 40 million and I'm driving a cab. But then you go, all right, so then I go to Leighton Orient, who just come, by the way, when I went there in 1985, they'd just come off the back of two successive relegations. Our Frank Clark was still in the job, I don't know. The first year, was uh, he was assistant to Ken Knight, and the second time, he was the manager. Then I turn up, um, and he, you know, he's, he's basically living on a knife edge, and he's trying to get a rise out of people. If it was said to me, like I said, there'd be bodies everywhere, first 10 minutes of the second half. I'll be, I'll be uh, right at it. I'd win the headers, win the tackles, and then distribute the ball. Start bossing people. Because when you boss people when you talk, it helps you concentrate. You understand what I mean? So I was just looking for the same reaction. And I apologise for giving you such a long-winded answer. No problem. But uh, that's the mistake I made. In terms of that, John, the documentary, the, as you say, it's been, been watched by so many. You, ultimately, you are then out of the game do you feel really just... How do you feel after that? Do you feel angry in the sense that you, because of that, for whatever reason, you had no real chance of a return, which to me is quite sad because you look at documentaries around the same time with Neil Warnock, he was using the exact same language as you and he seems to get jobs all the time. So how do you reflect back on that in terms of how you were out the game? Did you ever get close to getting back in at all? No, I've only ever had non-league jobs. I've done, done some non-league. I walked out on the last one. I mean, everyone that's been involved in a documentary has been mugged off. Graham Ricks, uh, they've done a documentary on the youth programme at Chelsea uh, and made him look a mug. Uh, Peter Reid made him look a mug. Uh, Graham Taylor made him look a mug. And like you say, Neil Warnock, he made him look a mug. But they're all much higher profile than me, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I was made to look a mug. I hold my hands up. I've got no... No embarrassment or qualms at all whatsoever. That was me up there on the screen, and I've got to, I've got to take it on the chin, and I've got to say, yeah, guilty as charged. You know what I mean? But when you look at it, uh, you just think possibly my own fault. Like I said earlier, very early on in the conversation, I think you've got to be uh, sycophantic, and I'm I'm not sycophantic. I can't shake hands really with someone that I don't like, and I can't laugh at jokes that ain't funny. And I quickly realised that I've gone from being an absolute social animal. Uh, out four or five times a week with friends in football. So all I wanted to do was, by the time I got to Gillingham and I was married when I, when I was at Gillingham at 21, all I wanted to do was get home to my wife and go for a quiet meal. And then what happened was um, at Lake Norrin, that's when we started our family. When I was get, jogging on 28, I didn't want to be out. I don't play golf anyway. And all the, I'm with Mark Twain. I think uh, golf is a good walk spoiled. Um, you know, but you look at it, all the, all the jobs were given out over half a lager, or what we call a session, um, and or a game of golf. And I, and I just wanted to go for a quiet meal. With I'm more, I don't know if it's going to surprise you. I don't know if it's going to shock you. I don't know if it's going to. I don't know what it's going to do. But I, I'm the type of person. Um, I'm victim of the most penalised regional accent in the in the United Kingdom. Because all Cockneys sound like they're a, a Barra boy. They've got a flower store outside Waterloo Station, and we all we all appeared as extras in the film Buster. <laughs> you know what I mean? When my 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 you know my favourite night out is a night at a concert or a theatre and a top draw meal, and then on. I mean, I don't you know. I went like I said, I went from being a social one. I just like to do the things like you know the theatre or the cinema, 
Um, or, you know, I'm a big film buff. and used to, We used to curl up on the sofa and get, at the time, the big thing was VHS videos. You know what I mean? And that, that suited me. So um, I let myself down in terms of what they call, I think, the, the, the buzzwords is networking, corporate networking, networking. So, you know, and then the last job I had, I've got, I've got three non-league jobs. So uh, I went to Enfield Town, a famous old non-league club, won every trophy in the book. The chairman had his own agenda. It's funny how it's run a parallel with Barry and at Leighton Orient. He basically stripped the club of every asset it had. Um, and, and he sold the land to the benefit of the local authority. Um, sold the car park, sold the, the ground, sold the pitch, sold the clubhouse. And uh, I'm assuming it's to do with some sort of covenant. Got yourself a nice few million out of it. And it's now got a multiplex cinema, a pizza hut, an outback steakhouse. And then right at the back, there's a swimming pool and sports centre, which I'm assuming satisfies any sports covenant. You know what I mean? So I had it on my toes from there. Went to Leighton, <clears throat> ironically round the corner from Leighton Orient, and I had two spells there. The first spell, um, the manager appointed me out of where, and I was asked if I wanted to pick up the reins. I said, I don't do things like that. So I left when he left. And then uh, they brought in... Uh, someone who was used to be a cab driver, Peter Shreves, he was a black cab driver, and he was working part-time at Spurs under Keith Berkinshaw, ends up youth team coach, reserve team coach, then the first team manager, then gets the Chelsea job. So he went one way and I went the other. Well, late and appointed Peter Shreves, had a disaster. Oh, first year was all right. Second, um, second and third year, or the second year was a disaster. The chairman said, I've spoke to, he rung me, so I spoke to the lads, I said, have a team meeting, I'll be back in 10 minutes, I want to know what you want to do. I'm not pumping all this money in and I'm not having another season like that. He said, I'll come back and it was unanimous. He said, they want you back. He said, said the most organised we've ever been, uh, the, the best coaching we've ever had, the most enjoyable it's ever been, the most informative it's ever been was under John Sitton getting back. So I went back, did pre-season, he paid me, which he did, he said, it's normally not, it's non-league policy. They don't pay the players or staff during pre-season, he said. But I'm so happy you've come back and I'm so happy with the job you're doing. And then uh, we kicked the season off and we played the first four games. I'll turn up on Thursday to take training. He says, can I have a word a minute? I said, yeah, no problem. And he, uh, the Cos, he was a Greek cigarette guy. And then he, uh, he said, no, no problem. I said, no problem, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, he said, no, call me Cos. He said, I'm going to come straight to the point. I said, what's that? He says, um, I'm not really happy with the way we're playing. <laughs> so I said, all right, so someone, someone's obviously uh, cast aspersions. Uh, someone's been bending your ear. I said, is it, is it your, you know, the ex-grab-a-lorry driver who's now your, your driver come bodyguard? Is it like the, the secretary? Is it the, the barmaid? Is it the corporation, the London Garden? How it helps you with like arrangements? You know, all these people like they all think it's like everybody else. Everyone's an expert manager at quarter to five. I yep. said, by the way, we've played four. Right, listen to this because this is important. We played four, won three, drawn one, scored twelve, conceded two. We're second in the league. I said, and we've got the top team to come twice. So I said. What are you going to be like if we lose two or three on the spin? You're now you're saying to me now I'm not happy with the way we're playing. So I said, what kind of support can I expect? I said, you know what? Saturday's my last game. You've got a guy who's very high up in um, some racial equality initiative, Troy Townsend. He was itching 
and I don't even know if it was him who said something. He was itching to take over, and I went out, and he, he um, basically, when he used to take training, he used to stand there, put his version of training, getting the team ready, he was pick two teams, have a nine aside, then he stand on the touchline, uh, scrolling down his mobile phone. I went out there. He was scrolling down his mobile phone. I said, go on, Troy, you wanted it, now you got it. He went, what? I said, Saturday's my last game out of courtesy, but I'm not doing any organisational work tonight. I said, it's all down to you. He said, what, 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 what? no, what? You know, you've got the wrong idea. I said, have I? I said, you, you, can, you wanted to take the team, now you take the team. And they were saying, like, Sitz, what's happening? So I said, he's taking the team now. I said, I'll be there Saturday. I said, but I'm not doing anything. It's all down to him. And then um, he's put on a nine aside. And they ended up sliding down the, down the division, but I'd already left. So that's how I parted company. Um, with regards to league football, I've never even had a sniff. Um, I'll be honest with you, I, I stopped applying. I stopped applying. The last job I applied for was youth team coach at Charlton. The manager was Alan Kerbisley. The number two was Les Reed. I'd already turned Alan Kerbisley over 3-0. Um, in a couple of pre-season games and made him look like a rabble. Les Reed I knew from the FA. He was an FA staff coach and I was under him for quite a, quite a few times when I was taking my badges. Keith Peacock was third in command. He was also a reserve team manager. I played under him for four years at Gillingham. I never even got the courtesy of a reply. Never got a letter saying thanks but no thanks. You need need not apply. There won't be any interview. I never even got the courtesy. They, they didn't, couldn't be bothered to waste a stamp on me. I rang Les Reed. I said, "What's going on?" He said, "He said uh, it's the Channel Four documentary." He said, "Like if we're going, if we're going for a kid, and let's say we're competing with uh, Arsenal and Millwall," he said, "and we show him around the ground, we invite him in as guests for the day, we give him complimentary tickets and lunch, and they say, well, who's going to be coaching?'" We say, "Yeah, come and meet him," <clears throat> and they shake hands with you and you're introduced, and then they go away saying, "Oh, that's the guest, the lunatic on Channel Four, who's shouting and screaming and swearing at everybody." He said, "We'd lose the kid." So you've got no chance. So I said, <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. I said, this is a club. I said, when I was youth coach at Orient, I said, three of your players uh, were all caught taking drugs. And he was shocked because they think that football didn't know. Right? But, but it's like, you know, you can't, you can't have it to suit yourself. You know, if it's a small world and everybody's talking and I'm going to pay the price for it, for it being a small world, with my conduct, then I think it's only fair it should be reciprocated. And he said, well, what do you mean? So I said, well, one of them I took on at late night and I tried to rehabilitate him. The other one went out of football. Christ knows where he is now. And the third one was worth a lot of money, a tremendous amount of money. I said, oh, you ended up uh, blooding into the first team at a very young age and sold for a lot of money to a club up north. And um, I won't say on air who it was because he's, he's, he's currently he's riding, riding high at the moment. So I said, you had three, you had three uh, players all caught dabbling with drugs at the training ground. I said, and you think, I don't know. I said, and you won't give me an interview because I swore on telly. I said, that absolutely fucking sums up the hypocrisy, right, and the double standards in football. So that was it. That was the last time I ever applied for anything in, in the pro game. In terms of late Noreen, John, See after your spell is we're going to come to your playing career soon, but how do you reflect on them as a club after the documentary? Did you fall out of love with the club considering you'd you'd been there and captained them? Um well I, I basically 
put it down to when, when someone asked me my opinion or my question. Let me give you, for instance, what well, I've got. I've done my autobiography and I've got a, I've got a private message saying that, like, well done. Uh, the first one they asked me how I did it, and I said, well, I did it with um, four pads of A4 and a pen. And they said, what? I said, yeah, I said, I did it all longhand. I used to go out and do my shift in the cab, right? And I'm going all around the houses here, but it's, it's relevant, the point I'm going to make. Oh, right? Trust me. Right? Um, I used to go out and do my shift in the cab. I'd go out at two in the afternoon, I'd get home at one in the morning, and then I would write longhand at one in the morning until four in the morning and then go to bed, right? And then I had it all typed out for me. And then you, you get the necessary people on board to design the book, etc. right? And lay it all out. Right, I'll receive the direct message saying, well done, but just be careful um, because obviously I wasn't high profile enough. Like I've said in the book, I don't have 80 England caps. No one's really interested in what I've got to say um, because I'm not an ex-England international and uh, they, they ultimately think that only the only people who know what football's all about is like, uh, you know, Carragher never wants to see this on, on uh, Sky. And, uh, you know, like Keane Oddle, um, the, 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 the right back from Arsenal who looks like Jimmy Somerville on ITV, right? They, they think that lower, lower division players don't, don't know what they're talking about, right? But it's the same game, right? So this person said to me, uh, yeah, I understand all that. He said, but when you self-publish, what I'm saying, I'm just giving you a little warning <clears throat> with regards to your financial outlay because self-penned books in the United Kingdom sell, uh, on average, less than 3,000 copies, right? Right, so picking up the thread of that, out of, I've done well in excess, vastly in excess of, of that amount, and approximately 60 Leighton Orange supporters have bought my book. Right, my book's been sold all over the world, all over the United Kingdom, and in London, mainly representative of few Spurs, few Arsenal, but mainly Chelsea, Millwall, West Ham supporters. Okay, Leighton Orient, I served for 10 years with knowledge, ability, dedication and passion, and the thanks I've got for saving them from relegation, then saving them from liquidation, and writing a book to explain it all, where it all went a little bit tits up, right? The thanks I got was 60 supporters could be bothered to buy my book out of an average gate of 4,000 to 4,500, right? So I said, in answer to your question, I care as much about Leighton Orient as they do about me. And everything that I prophesied and said will happen is exactly what I said will happen has happened. Um... Basically, the, we've got an A1 calibre. Everyone else was uh, the here and now. And I wanted to build the club from the bottom up and lay the correct foundations. We've got an A1 calibre, as it was called at the time, Centre of Excellence. Uh, used to be evening coaching, then it was Centre of Excellence. It's now academies. We've got an A1 calibre at our Centre of Excellence. And the only other two clubs in the whole of the South East to get the same was Norwich and Arsenal. Right, I got rid of all the glorified Sunday morning managers, bless them, and um, I bought in everybody was a fully qualified FA FA coach with a full badge, who I knew had watched work and vetted. Right, um, I'd earmarked a new youth youth development officer and youth coach and coaches for every age group, and I wanted them to take. 
I won't go into all the specifics, but like basically, I started to lay the foundations for how I wanted the club re-run and restructured. Um, I started to set up the scouting network, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then you fast forward 25 years, and you've got the likes of Nicky Butt saying it's a pleasure to work alongside Ollie Ollie Gunnar because he knows what it's all about because he realises how, how much money players cost these days and he knows it, it makes sense to produce your own players. The world and his wife right, have all been congratulating Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger for bringing in young players who've already been developed in France, by the way, um, and, and going with younger players and bringing them through and then reinventing the team and rejuvenating the team and refurbishing the team. But fundamentally, the core, the core element, were born and bred well, not so much born, but like, you know what I'm driving at. They basically got Man United running through their, like a, like a, a thing through their bodies, like a, like a stick of Blackpool Rock. And it, to me, it made sense uh, for a club like Lake Norrin, who've got, you know, they're, I've said it, I'm not being bitchy, I've said it in my second book. They're a borderline non-league club. I happen to think that anyone below halfway in the championship is more than capable of just sliding down the divisions into obscurity. Right now, Leighton Orient, when I was at Chelsea in the 70s, were in the top five, top six, top seven, top eight of what is now the championship. So they would have been in playoff positions year in, year out in the early to mid-70s when I was at Chelsea. Early to mid, well, all the way through the 70s, because they had that great nucleus of a, of a side that had been bought through the ranks, coupled with good purchases and decent professionals. And I said, we've got to get back to that. You know, it's a case of jumping in the DeLorean and going back to the future. And this is how the club's got to be run. Um, little did I, you know, I mean, my predictions came true. What, what I said about the um, the guy who's now the president, um, he sold too many players who had been bought through the ranks far too cheaply. Think Aaron McLean, 75 grand. Think Jabbo Ibrahe, 75 grand. Both had, I think they both had a spell in the Premier League. Darren Purse, who I bought through from the 13-year-old, they sold him for 75 grand. Like, it's something about the figure 75 grand, right? And I just said, he, he, this guy is meant to be a businessman. He sold him to Oxford because uh, he's number two. Um, new Morris Evans, they sold him to Oxford to, for 75 grand. And they said, oh, yeah, but we, uh, we negotiated a 30% sell-on fee. So I said, well, I'm sorry. I said, like, that ain't how I'd operate. I said, it should be the other way around. I said, it should be in your favour to begin with. And then they might ring the bell with a dividend. I said, what they're doing, if they're making it look like they're doing you a favour and you get the dividend. I said, you bought a player through, you're selling him for 75 grand, he gets sold to Birmingham for a million pounds, but you get a 30% sell-on. I said, so in effect, ultimately, what you're doing, you're receiving 375 grand for a million pound player. How is that good business? I said, and you've done all the work, or your coaches have, like me. I was his coach for like four years. Uh, I've done all the work to produce a player, and, and, and got the uh, got the young one. I gave him a portfolio, insisting that every group coach gets a percentage of um, of a player's um, of a player's transfer fee, one uh, percent or something like that, or a lump sum. So someone like me, uh, who's bought Darren Purse through. Um, I would have got I would have got a lump sum for working hard on this kid and producing a million pound pl uh, player, which was a lot of money back in the early mid nineties. It was still a lot of money then. Right, he got sold four times for a million pound. Right, and he was he was a borderline um, borderline England uh, prospect. But I said, how is that good business if if you've done all the work 
and the club that's in inverted commas taken a chance on him, even though it's a move sideways. I mean, who are Oxford? You know, I mean, it's another Mickey Mouse club. Who are Oxford? He's moving at best. He's moving sideways to Oxford. Then they sell him, and all he's cost them is a bit of wages, and they've sold him for six hundred and seventy-five grand profit. <laughs> Tell me the sense in that. Exactly. Well, he's done it time and time. He's done it time and time and time and time again. Uh, so Purse, Iberate, McLean, Zakuani, the centre back. He went for hundred grand or something like that to, to Fulham. Complete and utter nonsense. So strip the club of all its playing assets. They've got absolutely no playing assets, and they haven't had since Sarlev, more or less. They've got a youth policy that's nondescript, negligible, um, uh, uh, basically not uh, non-productive. And then you've got an, uh, a commercial department that are deluded. I got invited to a game there last year. Um, they're in the National League, for Christ's sake, last year. And they wanted 25 grand for a table of 10 in, in the hospitality lounge. I said, who's, who's come up with these prices? They're deluded. So they've got a, they've got a commercial department that's out deluded. And then he sold the land on the four corners of the ground um, to a development company. No one knows where the money went. Um, and they built 66 apartments, and uh, the guy got two apartments out of it. Right? Well, now he's the president. You know what I mean? So the, the club's got nothing, nothing on the field, nothing off the field. So, you know, maybe, listen, maybe it was a blessing in disguise because I've given you yet again a massively long-winded answer. Um, but, you know, who am I to fight everybody else's battles and say, no, I don't agree with this, I don't think that should happen. Um, you know, no one knows where the money went for the land. No one knows where the money went for the apartments. No one knows where the, the ground rent money goes. Uh, they got a million pounds from an FA Cup replay against uh, against Arsenal. Um, no one knows where that went. He said oh, it was spent on legal fees. And so I said, all right, well, you know, if he tells you to put your head in the curb as a bus is coming, would you do it? And they went, what do you mean? So I said, well, he says he spent it on legal fees. You've only got his word for it because... Uh, yet again, it's, it's, um, it's smoke and mirrors. Uh, the man's deluded. Why is he deluded? I said, well, he, he's spending on supposedly, in inverted commas, legal fees to fight West Ham for the, uh, the access to the Olympic Stadium, or what is now known as the London Stadium, right? Well, they've reduced the capacity from 80,000 to 61,000 for West Ham. Imagine having a stadium, 61,000, right, reduced from 80,000 to 61,000, for late night own games, and 4,000 people turn up. I said, you'd have to send a telegram every time you wanted to talk to someone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Can you imagine 4,000 rattling around in that stadium? It's completely <laughs> and utterly absurd, right? And yet he said he's, he wanted to try and get the stadium for late night. I suspect what it was, he wanted to get it for things like concerts and boxing um, and, and darts and that, that type of carry-on, because it definitely wouldn't have suited late night. Imagine 4,000 supporters rattling around in that ground. I said, like, so what you're saying is complete and not utter nonsense. But you, you, if you're all, you, you're all going to listen to it and you think he's rolling on his white charger with his suit of armour and save the day, you get on with it. But he never. I'll turn that club um, from a £520,000, so £10,000 a week, right? Ergo, that's £520,000 over the year. I'll turn it from that. And I, when I left, after he promised me a three-year deal... And he was conducting interviews behind me back. So he stabbed me in the back, gave the job to the geezer I wanted as my number two, Pat Holland, who lasted, I think, under 10 months. I left that club 170 to 200. I'm sitting in the room now with the briefcase down the side of me with all the information in it. 
I left them between 170 and 220,000 pounds in the black. I gave it a pat on to spend it. And then within 10 months, he was sacked. Do you know what I mean? The problem you've got is delusions of grandeur. You've got to do it a step at a time, baby steps. You've got to lay the foundations. You've got to get everything tightly organized. You've got to bring people up, players up. You've got to bring them up as not just as players, but as people. So you're creating an environment and a culture that they buy into, right? Whereby you're turning out decent footballers, but also decent human beings. You understand? All this was too profound for them. It was too profound for them. So, you know, they believed in Barry Earn, who sold them a dream, and it's become a nightmare. And I'll, and <laughs> so, in a sentence, in, and in answer to your question, I care as much about them as they do about me. But obviously, I'm devastated. It's like a dagger to the art. I'll put it in my second book. It's like a dagger to the art. When you give 10 years, very good playing ability, very good all-round defender, very competent defender, good in the air, two good feet, controlled with any surface, chest, fire, uh, side foot, instep, you name it. Um, could pass with both feet, could boss people, could organise, could uh, put in a shift, could put in a naughty tackle, um, get on top of the centre forward and slowly but surely get control of the game, right? And then added to that dedication to get to that, and then added to that um, the passion to want to try and win, right? It, it, the response I got for the book and, and the support, saying, so, you know, no, 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 no. We, we can turn it round. Um, it, it absolutely devastated me. Devastated me. So it is what it is. I'll just, I'll get on with my life as best I can. I miss football, as you can probably imagine. And I'm reading nonsense now from morons, uh, sports psychologist morons, right, um, who, who are basically saying that, you know, because of the coronavirus, players are going to end up with gambling addiction. They're going to go, they're going to get addicted. They're going to go on drugs. They're going to get on the drink. They're going to have suicidal thoughts. I'm like, you know, who is this? Who is this moron? Right? Who is this idiot? You know what I mean? Cut putting it in the newspaper. What's that? Just get a grip. You know what I mean? Get a grip. And uh, have a dose of reality. You know, yeah, you miss, I miss football. They're, they're missing football. They can't miss it any more than me. I've been out of it for 25 years. They'll be back playing within three months. And you've got to listen to this. You know, hipster, millennial, uh, lovey-ovey, you know, lovey-dovey-ovey, kissy, millennial bullshit. I can't be having it. What I want to ask you, John, is putting you on the spot with this, but when Barry Hearn took over, there was rumours you were potentially in the running to come back. Was that just paper talking nonsense? Sorry, mate. Can you can I ask you to repeat that? Because I'm getting a bit of... I'm just getting a bit of uh, an echo in there and it's just cutting across what you're saying. Well, um, when Barry Hearn took over, there was rumours that you were potentially in the running to go back. Was, was that nonsense? Was it ever close at all? When he took over what? The second part what? When he took over Leighton Orient, there was rumours that you could have returned to the club a few years after that you had left the club. Was that ever close? I think so, yeah, because um, they were in Trevor banging trouble. And, um, you know, I've had uh, some, on the plus side, on the positive side, totally contradictory to what I've just said. 
Um, I've, had, I've had some magnificent support on social media, and then when they were banging trouble with regards to how much of a shambles it had become, and rudderless, um, under, uh, just after the previous guy, Frank Hopachetti, um, people were saying on social media to get me back, and then it went to the um, the supporters' notice board, and it, it transpired that I had something like seventy-five percent support on the uh, on the fans' notice board. But um, they had a Leighton Orient fans trust meeting, um, and then you've got a guy there called Matthew Porter who he started as a tunnel announcer. He, he, I would, I'll, I'll return to the club and they had to let me in after banning me from the ground. They had to let me in because it would have been restraint of trade. Well, what happened was there were these jobs being offered by the PFA for you to accumulate, watch a game and accumulate the statistics with a headset on. So my first port of call was um, Leighton Orient and they had to let me in the ground. Well, when I was turning up there, Matthew Porter was the uh, Tannoy announcer. Um, he's since become head of um, the darts arm of Macron and he's Barry Earns number two and I also happen to believe his eyes and ears uh, you know in brackets he's, he's, if you for want of a better word he's, he's spy and he, he was he said that the Lake Norian Fans Trust meeting to people, several people who raised the issue uh, John Sitton will never be allowed back at this football club yeah, because obviously they know I'm onto them. You know what I mean? They know they know that uh, it, what it is. I like to think I'm, you know, uh, he's done me no good. But I like to think I'm a man of honour. I like to think I'm an honourable person, an honourable man. And um, you know, unfortunately, you've got other people who think they're going to live to be 160, and they're just trying to accumulate as much money as they can um, to the detriment of of the well-being in this, on this particular occasion of a football club. But what was said was I would never be allowed back at the football club. Um, so after doing that, such a good job with the Press Association, I was then invited to fill in for a couple of people who went off sick and didn't quite fancy it at places like Spurs, West Ham, Watford. And then I was very fortunate enough to be offered... Um, I ended up doing it for 10 consecutive seasons at every Arsenal home game. So I left late nine well behind, you know what I mean? And it was a pleasure and a privilege to turn up and see teams like, you know, the Invincibles. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, I mean, any uh, any notion of me actually returning to, uh, you know, put the plans in place that I wanted to in the first place, it seems like they were shot down in flames. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song